Matthew chapter 17, verse, starting at verse 24 through to um, Matthew 18, verse 14. And if you've got the church Bibles, it's on page 823. When they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take from take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth you will find a shekel take that and give it to them for me and for yourself at that time the disciples came to jesus saying who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and calling to him a child he put him in the midst of them and said truly i say to you unless you turn and become like children You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the eternal into hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is with the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that not one of these little ones should perish. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Uh, And uh, I think uh, after that reading, I should probably say, no, uh, I didn't sort of uh, plan this. We're just here. It's not lost on me that we're on Father's Day and we've got a reading, a set of readings on children. Uh, and it's kind of like, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's almost fitting in a way, but then actually completely the wrong way, isn't it? So, uh, but that's where we happen to be up to as we track through Matthew. Uh, uh, but uh, if you think about it for a second, uh, as James kind of alluded to earlier uh, as we opened the service, uh, Being a father is being a child if you're following Jesus because when it comes to the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was always proclaiming, uh, then uh, everyone who follows Jesus, which is what we've been working through in Matthew, that's where we were last week if you remember, Jesus calling people to follow him and everyone who does follow Jesus, 
becomes a child of God. So, dads, uh, yes, today's readings are actually for you too as well, uh, if you are following Jesus, because all of us who have come to trust in Jesus have become children of God. Children of God, isn't that an exciting way to think of ourselves? Sometimes the gospel puts that truth to us very crisply, uh, very crisply indeed. For example, the Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1, uh, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we receive Jesus and trust in his name, we are reborn to become God's children from now on. Other times, it's not so explicit and crystallised as that in, in John, uh, and we, we hear it in passing, and that's what's happening today in our text in Matthew 17, where, where Jesus seems to want Peter to kind of piece together that same truth, that, that he is a child of heaven. Uh, we have to read it uh, and see. Uh, just think of how Peter would be putting this together as Jesus speaks. In chapter 17, verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. The parallel that Jesus is drawing on there is about kings of the earth. They don't tax their sons, but... What Jesus is pointing Peter to is that he is a son, not of any kingdom of the earth or anything like that. He's a son of the kingdom of heaven. Peter, because he is a follower of Jesus, Peter has now become a child of God now. The concession that Jesus then gives, the big however that comes in verse 27, is, is to make that analogy clear and make it clear that it's about Peter that Jesus is speaking and, and about himself, if you notice his words here. When he said sons in verse 26, Jesus was assigning to Peter some status that Peter now shares with Jesus. And he does it again in verse 27. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Peter is now considered to be a son of God and in some brotherly way, like Jesus. The sons are free, but even so, go and pay the tax for both you and me. The two drachma tax, by the way, was a tax that all men in Israel, 20 years and older, paid every year. The concept came from the book of Exodus, if you want to chase it up. During those instructions, actually, that God gave to Moses on the mountain, we were thinking about last week, the, the instructions about the tabernacle where they would worship him uh, to help maintain that tabernacle system. Uh, and then later the fixed temple in Jerusalem that replaced it. Funds were made available from a tax that had been collected and, and it was collected every year uh, from all the men in Israel who were 20 years and older. Two days' wages, uh, as it was, a half shekel at the time of Moses. And in Peter's day, 
two drachma. That was what the money was to be used for from the tax, at least, according to Exodus 38. It was used for maintaining the temple. But the rationale for the tax had been given back a few chapters in Exodus 30, if you go digging into this. And let me read a bit of this. Exodus 30, verse 11. Here's where it first comes from. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 gerahs, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. By way of context on that, that they had already been saved by God out of slavery at this point in time while Moses is on the mountain receiving those instructions. And to testify that it was the Lord who saved them and the Lord who was now keeping them safe, they were to give a simple little offering, a half shekel, two days' wages every year to the Lord, which is nothing in the scheme of things, if you think it through. More token than, than an actual ransom, we would think. Anyway, centuries later, in Matthew 17, I reckon we might ask a bigger question prompted by these men here. Does Jesus have to pay this tax? Does he have to pay it at all? It's, it, it's a bit unfair because you and I can sit here today and we can know this much of Jesus from the rest of Scripture. We, we know that actually Jesus was the one who ransomed Israel out of slavery and who kept them safe from there on. He was the one who would dwell in the temple that these taxes would maintain. So does Jesus have to pay this tax? At any rate, he has been paying it according to what Peter says back to these men. Yes, he pays it. The son of the living God, as Peter has just confessed of Jesus, if you recall, in chapter 16, the Son of the Living God has become incarnate, after all, and he has become, become incarnate into this context as a man in Israel, and at the time of Matthew 17, he's over 20 years of age, and he seems happy to pay the tax. But he's more interested in, in the opportunity this is to teach Peter something about Peter now being a son. He's been working on Peter, if you've noticed, over these last few chapters. But more broadly, I think, <laughs> he's been working on Peter for the sake of you and I. So here's something I'm sure we should take from that first paragraph there in our text today, at the end of Matthew 17. To belong to Jesus is to belong to God. It is to be one of God's sons, a child of heaven. And that brings great freedom, more freedom than we probably yet even conceive. And yet, nevertheless, we still have various responsibilities as we live out this life. And perhaps we might also just give joyfully back to the Lord for what he has done. And after all, is it not God who gives us all things to begin with? 
I love Jesus' miracle here. Jesus' miracle here is just so, on so many levels I love this miracle, not least of which because I used to be a fishery scientist and a very keen fisherman as a young lad before that. But, but one thing that actually jumps out at me today about this is, is just the way that God provides. God provides all that I have actually. Don't worry about what I might need. And if I am his child now, how much more so will he, he now provide for me? This is actually what Jesus said back in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, unfolding live for Peter. Beautiful miracle, beautiful truth about becoming a children of God. There's a great humility with it though, a great humility that comes with this truth of becoming a child of God. To believe in the Lord Jesus and be reborn as, as children of heaven unfolds in humility as Jesus keeps teaching in chapter 18. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I guess the first truth we've just been thinking about, that we can become children of God just by following Jesus, I guess that might give us a touch of pride or something by the sound of that question. Uh, or maybe it's just that we're, we're still trying to wrap our heads around all this. We, we might ask questions like that from time to time. Jesus answers it in verse 2. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a different angle on this lovely idea of being a child of God, isn't it? On the one hand, we might take the first paragraph we looked at and, and cherish that stuff there with Peter and the two drachmas and we might think of ourselves now quite highly. I'm a child of God. And yet on the other hand, we also have to think of it like this, says Jesus. We should think of ourselves actually as quite lowly. If we would enter the kingdom of heaven at all, we must surrender ourselves and become like this little child. Both at the same time are true. To be a child is to be precious and exalted, but at the same time humbled and lowly. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Our thinking needs to be flipped on its head. If we would be great, in the, in the way that heaven sees things, if we would be great, then we must be least and lowest of all. We've lost something as we grew older. We have lost something. And there is what it is. Humility. The joyful truth of being children of heaven also has a very humbling side. And so it also therefore brings quite an outward kind of dimension, this call that we're thinking through, if you think all of this through, because suddenly it's not all about me. If I'm the least and lowest of all, if this humble and exalted kind of way is true of all whom God calls, then suddenly this is a bit like that old demotivational poster. I don't know if you know, a picture of a snowflake, and it said something like, always remember, you're unique, just like everyone else. 
is something like that here now, isn't it? Uh, we, we should learn how to, how to uh, look upon all God's children as, as equally precious. And so the disciples' motives here in this question needs to be checked, doesn't it? And when we ask questions, anything like this, we need to be uh, checking what's going on in our heart. All of God's children are equally precious and we should think of them that way, in that brotherly way that Jesus just spoke of Peter, lifting Peter up to where he was as sons. And if we did that, our focus would, would not be internal anymore and it wouldn't be leading to so much rivalry of all, all these different kinds, but rather with, with humble and external eyes, we would be edifying each other and building each other up in, in our family of faith. And we would be very careful in that kind of posture not to cause God's other children to, to stumble or, or sin. And the rest of Jesus' teachings in this scripture today speaks to that outward kind of call. Uh, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. By one such child in verse 5 and and one of these little ones in verse 6, Jesus is talking about the people we've been talking about, those who humble themselves and come to him to be received into the kingdom of heaven as children of God. It's not about children per se that he speaks about here, as much as that kind of warning would still nevertheless be good. But the, but the child whom he called in verse 2 there was to illustrate his point, which more broadly was about those who are reborn to become children of God. The little one or, or, or the child is not one of young age. It's the one who comes to Jesus when he calls, verse 2. It's the one who is humble before Jesus, verse 4. It's the one who believes in Jesus, verse 6. And so the woe he pronounces there is for those who cause Jesus' disciples to be tempted to sin. And a terrifying woe it is. And so as Jesus' disciples, I think from that we should expect to face temptations. He makes that pretty clear, don't you think, in verse 7. They are going to come. But also we should take his other point here. It should not be through us that such temptations come to others. That in itself would be sin for us. To tempt any other of Jesus' disciples, the children of heaven as they are, to sin. And he's already spoken of the serious, uh, serious nature of sin, but he repeats here what, what he actually said back in chapter 5, if you recall. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
Some serious things then we should take away from those words if we are followers of Jesus. First of all, note the call running through there to obey. At first glance, verses 8 and 9 sound like we can, we can lose our family place. But actually that wouldn't make sense given the rest of the scriptures we've read through today. Uh, rather, uh, if we truly have become disciples of Jesus, then we will slowly but surely learn to obey. And so he has to teach us and, and warn us like he does here so that we do learn this new way. We all like the part of the gospel where Jesus saves us, don't we? But, but he also does call us to obey. Now, sometimes that might sound counterintuitive or, or, or it doesn't sort of go together, but it does go together. If we truly repent of our sin, if we turn, that is, as he puts it there in verse 3, if we turn from our sin in order to be saved, then, then what do we think we might be saved from? Hell, uh, yes, and Jesus strikes that up again here, but if we want Jesus to save us from hell, the, the punishment for sin, wouldn't we also therefore want to live in Jesus' way? How, how can I think it the other way? How can a life of willful and ongoing sin be, be harmonised with becoming children of heaven? That's what wouldn't make sense. Second in all of that, notice that Jesus therefore wants us to fight, to be serious about sin. His, his picture language there, you know, about cutting off hands and, and gouging out eyes. We can't take it literally. And even if we could take it literally, it, it wouldn't deal with what's going on in our hearts, would it? But the imagery is strong. The imagery is meant to, to make us sit up and take note, I'm sure, about how seriously we are to fight. And third, we might consider that we are not alone in that fight. What we're to heed here in verse 10 in regard to the other children of God is also true of us if, if we are children of God. Our angels always see the face of the Father in heaven. A very mysterious scripture, no doubt, but surely we can add this much up from what Jesus says here. We have heavenly protectors on our side. We will face temptation, as Jesus says here, but not on our lonesome. And uh, we must fight against sin, but not necessarily in our own might. All of which seems to be saying that God intends to transform us now as his children, to change us now, to grow us now, so that we will become strong against temptation and determined against sin. Because you know, enslaved to sin, hopeless in sin, in ongoing, that's what, that's what we once upon a time were, but we now are children of heaven. And all of that, uh, even deeper is underpinned by the great comfort in this, the great security in all this for the children of God. Because at the end of the day, God will keep all of his precious, precious children safe. What do you think, Jesus says in verse 12, if a man has a hundred sheep and, and one of them has gone astray, 
Does he not leave the 99 on the, on the mountains and, and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So woe to the one who leads God's children astray. We, we must be sure to lock that part in. But at the end of the day, God will bring his children who have been led astray back to him. There's a challenge as we try to figure out all these things here in, in the context here. And perhaps there's a couple of angles we might uh, try to take hold of Jesus' teachings here, I guess depending on which direction we're coming at uh, all this from. We ourselves will be safe in the end. How beautiful is that? As we fight against sin and, and, and resist temptation, we can know that together with all of God's children, we will be saved. But at the same time, we ought to be careful, therefore, as we live out our faith, that we, we edify and encourage one another rather than bring others down into sin. We must be careful not to contend against God. Which I wonder might have been behind Jesus' concession back where we started all this in chapter 17 when he, when he said to Peter, so as not to cause offence to them, go and pay the tax. Because the word back there actually uh, was the same word that's running through all these bits here in chapter 18 uh, such that maybe what Jesus meant back there was, was that by paying the tax they won't lead others astray from their God, tempting them to sin in any way. Maybe some of those tax collectors, unbeknownst to Peter, I suppose, maybe some of those were also children of God. Maybe Jesus was modelling there what, what it looks like to be careful not to hinder anyone from coming to God. Particularly when you think that, you know, we don't always know yet, do we, who the children of God are uh, or who will be in the fullness of time. Jesus has paid our ransom, uh, of that we can be very sure. There's, there's no need for a token tax now around that. We are free from such things. But at the same time, those coins were an offering to God. And, and surely that's a good thing. And surely some of those giving to God were, were doing so because they wanted to draw close to God. And surely even some of them, who, whom we may not yet know this of, but some of them are or, or, or will be children of heaven at the end of all these things. I don't know, but maybe it goes something like this. that The children of heaven may be free from the temple tax, but, but surely they should still give and, and let give so that all of God's children can give glory to their Father. Uh, and so too the children of heaven may be free from the punishment of hell, thanks to Jesus, but surely they should now live and, and let live so that all would glorify their Father in heaven. I don't know. There may be a connection running all the way back through there. You can think that through. Maybe something to think about over dinner. But we can, I think, sum up some, some basics that, that we have to take out of what Jesus says here in these scriptures today. First of all, this much. 
if you have turned from your sin and, and come unto Jesus to be saved, then learn now to see yourself in this way. Learn to see yourself as a child of God. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus has been saying, is well and truly now at hand. You are a child of God. And that first truth here, to see your identity as, as a child of the living God, has two important sides to it from what Jesus says here. Obviously it means that you are now very precious in God's eyes. Oh, could anyone be more precious than his children? But so too it means that you'll have been humbled, already humbled, and so as to be humble here on out. And secondly, as we think that through, we, we must learn to understand the same truth of others who come to God. That we should not regard other people as, as any less so, for they too may be children of God. We might know that of others, which would kind of make this all more straightforward, I suppose, but so too we might not know that of others, in which case, what? Well, I guess we ought to be more careful and, and take on this mindset in general, whether those people follow Jesus yet or not, and, and whether we know that yet or not. We don't want to lead anyone astray from God. Things change, wouldn't you say, when, when sinners are forgiven to become the children of God. Yeah, things, things have to change. Maybe we can discuss that with each other, uh, becoming children of God over church dinner tonight, what our stories were like and what they're like today. Maybe we can rejoice together uh, in some small way over our Father in heaven this Father's Day. But for now, how about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your word and we thank you for the idea running through these parts of Matthew here about sonship, about becoming your children, that through Jesus you receive us as your children too. Father, we do not deserve this. We know that much is true. But here is your truth. You are such a great God. Thank you, therefore, that we can pray to you as our Heavenly Father, that you are our Father. Thank you for this wondrous privilege, what you have done to bring us to you. We pray that you would therefore now transform us and change us in that truth to be, as we read here, more fitting as your children and that through that we would, we would give you glory this Father's Day and every day. Help us, Father, to see us uh, see ourselves as, as, as your children. Help that to sink in every day for the rest of our lives. Help it sink in more and more that we belong to you and that you love us and that you see us as your children. Help us through that to treat others as precious to you too. In Jesus' name we ask your help with this. Amen.